This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. A very good morning to everyone. It's always a privilege to open up God's Word together and to look at it as a body of Christ. And we do not take this privilege lightly because it's not always free of persecution. So let us begin this time as we commit ourselves to our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the week that has passed. We pray this moment that you quieten our hearts as we have sang songs about you and about who we are in you. That God, you will prepare our hearts as we engage with your truth. So that God, your word may illumine our hearts and our minds that we may come to know you and to love Jesus more. Amen. Now I want to begin asking this. If you are a scriptwriter, how would you end your story? If you are a scriptwriter, how would you end your story? Well, if you happen to be a kind of traditional Disney scriptwriter, you'll have a happily ever after ending. The prince and the princess get married, the credits roll up, there's no dishes to wash, no quarrels to be made, no diapers to be changed, and everyone lives with a feel-good experience. But if you're a scriptwriter of horror films, you'll never provide a completely happy ending. No, evil is always lurking just around the corner with a possible sequel next year. But if you're the author of Second Samuel, or more than a scriptwriter, you're the biographer of David, how would you end the story of David. Now, by now we've taken a journey with David as we look into his life. We've seen the rise of a humble but righteous man to become the greatest king of Israel or Jewish history. And David's kingdom, his kingship in the beginning gave us a glimpse of how God's kingship and kingdom of heaven would look like because mercy was shown to enemies, justice was given to the unrighteous. In fact, at the peak, uh, of David's kingdom, God revealed a promise that will, that he will have a kingdom that will last forever and a kingship in his descendants. In fact, chapter 8, earlier on, verse 15, he writes this way. Let me read to us. In fact, if you have your Bible, keep it open. We'll be looking at the Bible frequently. Chapter 8, verse 15, the writer says this, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was right, what was just and right for all his people. That was the way David was being described. We've seen the rise of David. But then we have also seen the fall of this king because of sin. And we saw how terrible sin can twist the heart of even the best among humanity. Humanity. Now the underlying of all the sins David has brought up for us is that, or underlying of all the sin is that man despised God. That's what the, the scripture says in chapter 11, verse 10. Let me read this for us. God said this about David. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. We saw how deep and wide the consequence of sin can reach over the last few chapters. We saw the rise and the fall of King David. We saw how David was a typology of King Jesus, but we also saw how King David was a mirror to show us the horror of the sin in all of us. 
So this morning we have come to the end of kind of David's exodus from Jerusalem and he's finally returning to re-establish his kingdom. But unfortunately, it's not going to be a happily ever after as we have liked chapter 20 for us. And chapter 20 kind of leaves the readers, the first readers kind of wanting more and for us actually a greater gratitude when Jesus appears. So let's take this journey with the author of Second Samuel as we reflect on three key things in chapter 20. The people of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God's king, and the kingship of God's king. Let me say that again, it's in your outline. The people of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God's king, and the kingship of God's king. Now amongst the people of God's kingdom, there is this decisive person, divisive person by the name Sheba. Let me just read verse 1 and 2 for us as you look at it with me. Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bikri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded a trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son, every man to his town Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bikri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from Jordan to Jerusalem. So at the beginning, we meet this um, troublemaker, Sheba. He's a divisive person among God's people. He kind of raised himself up as a leader. He puts to question God's promise to David and that it is through David that blessing comes. And he draws those who are not submissive to David to say, let's go home and live our own lives. Now I just want to pause here and if you examine, just look at the character of Sheba for a short moment, we'll find that he's quite a familiar character because there is always a Sheba waiting around the corner, ready to divide God's people at every point. A Sheba who wants to lead God's people for himself. In fact, we've seen Absalom already, isn't it? Past few chapters. And you know what? We'll see Adonijah again in 1 Kings 1, if you flip on later. He's kind of a comical way of a presentation. He's another son of David, and he acts almost exactly like Absalom. He's kind of Absalom version 2.0. There is always a Sheba who wants to turn people away from God's word, promise, and commands. We'll see this all through church history, and we'll see it even today. Such a person, he or she may not speak directly against God, but he or she will always question God's appointed king. The voice of Sheba goes this way, We have no share in David and no part in Jesse's son. If you kind of dig it a little bit more, Sheba basically is saying this, David, the son of Jesse, he's not the only way into God's kingdom. He's not the one. He's not the only way. And even today, we hear the echoes of the Shebas in our generation who will say, you know what, Jesus, the root of Jesse, well, he's not the only way into God's kingdom. Get back to your own house, do your own things. There are other ways. But the irony is this, the son of Jesse is the only way into God's kingdom for the Israelites in Second Samuel and for us. In fact, God has already given this promise. I'll read to you what uh, in Second Samuel chapter seven, and and God already gave this promise again in the prophet Isaiah. Let me just read to you uh, what Isaiah declared about the son of Jesse. 
It's taken from his book, chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 10. I've up in the screen, I think. But let me read this to you. Isaiah said this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And goes on, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. You know how dangerous it is to hear the voices of Sheba that says, you know what, the son of Jesse is not the only way. Let's get back. There'll be better ways. But there is none. The blessings and rest of God is never away from the banner of the son of Jesse. For God gathers his people around his chosen king, the son of Jesse, which Sheba and now Israel are turning away. In fact, Isaiah 11 furthers um, this with one more verse. It says, In that day the Lord will reach out His hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of His people through the son of Jesse. You know, this is just a brief account of two verses, but it, it shows the divided Israel and Judah and it actually preempts the rest of Israel's history if you carry on reading your Old Testament. This is going to be what happens. It's just a preempt of what happens because we read after David dies, after Solomon dies, God's people will once again be divided. The Israelites, the, the people of Israel who once no share of son of Jesse, they became known as the northern kingdom. Those who stick with the sons of Jesse, they stayed as the southern kingdom. And that will be how the story of God's people unfold in the rest of your Old Testament. Eventually, the northern kingdom Israel, they will be completely destroyed in 722 BC by the Assyrians. And later on, the, north, the southern kingdom Judah, they will be captured by the Babylonians. But God, in His mercy, brings these people back. And that's where the story of your New Testament carries on. So even though it's just kind of a glimpse of this, the writer, when he writes this, all these things have already happened. And it's a pre-warn of what will soon take place. Those who do not want a share in the inheritance of the son of Jesse will have no share at all. Now I believe of various things, the author of Second Samuel is preempting us of the history ahead. But even as we kind of pause here, I want to kind of think a little bit of the implication for you and for me. Because we see there are so many Shebas even in our age, will draw us away from our loyalty to our king or to Jesus. Now we may say, kind of, you know what, Andrew, if you look at Second Samuel, David is really an imperfect king. If he had just stayed there and do some mediation, you no know, Judah and Israel, they would not really kind of split. It is all David's fault. But the truth is this, the division of the people of Israel is not just because of David, it's because their hearts have returned away from God. Because even if God were to give them a perfect king, those whose hearts are not with God and with God's king, they will still leave. In fact, the New Testament gives us such an example when Jesus appeared. Let me just read to you what happened to Jesus in John 6. John 6, 61. Aware that his disciples were kind of grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? In verse 25 of John 6, Jesus went on to say, This is why I tell you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. 
may we never turn away from God's anointed son of Jesse, Jesus and the son of David. For the son of Jesse is the only way to enter and have access into the kingdom of God and the inheritance of heaven. But however, as we kind of follow David and Judah in this story, we get back to them and they enter Jerusalem and they try to re-establish David's kingdom. We'll see all the more the need of God's promise to come through this greatest son. Because as David kind of returned, it is somewhat kind of a divided nation already. He will face more discouragement as he faced kind of detached relationships, delayed obedience, kind of even derailed power, and even destructive tendency of God's people. Um, we'll look at it individually again. But as David enters, he will start to face detached relationships he has to handle, delayed obedience of his own people, the power that he has planned out was derailed, and a destructive tendency even in God's people. So let's first look at the first encounter of the detached relationship in verse 3. You know, being an imperfect king, David came back. He's unable to kind of fully restore relationships that were broken. His ten concubines whom he left to take care of the palace, they were violated by Absalom, and David could no longer reconcile with them. So he put them in a house guard. He provided for their needs, but you know, the scripture says that they live as widows until their death. The power of sin and evil are so strong for David that he can't reverse the effects. The detached relationship cannot be fully reconciled. The scars of sin and evil remain in the kingdom of David to his death. The concubines who look forward for David's return, that's their job, isn't it? The concubines who look forward to David's return do not receive the comfort that they want and they long for from their king. But we know that there is a greater king than David, the greater David, Jesus, because he can overcome the power of sin and death. Even the worst relationships can be made perfect again. Those who are broken, those who look for the king's return, they will not be disappointed. They will not carry the scars of sin and death like how the ten concubines had to. For the king himself, Jesus will bear the scars and establish a perfect relationship for all who come back to him, no matter how broken we are. That is the Jesus, that he's the one who draws the Peter who denied him three times and reconciled him back to himself and say, you go out and feed my sheep. And he's the one who, who has um, a disciple called Thomas that the church history unfairly calls Doubting Thomas because if we are him, we'll be the same. But he restored the Doubting Thomas to his faith. Now the question is, how does Jesus kind of restore broken relationships and those that are impossible to reconcile? Let me just read to you what Jesus says because he can best explain himself. Let me read to you what Jesus says in John 20, verse 26b. Jesus said this, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand, put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And dear friends, as we or the first readers read this account of the ten concubines, you know what? We long for David to have kind of more power and no more ability to reconcile brokenness in his kingdom. But he can't. And that is exactly what Jesus comes to do. You know, Jesus' perfect body, 
where he resurrected was not kind of smooth and nice. His perfect body comes with scars so that our scars can be cleaned off. In his perfect body, Jesus touch the scars, touch the side, see the wounds. You will be restored when you come to me. And that is the king that the world needs. You know, do, you, do, you, do you and I have brokenness in our lives that kind of need restoration? Has our relationship with God been broken because of sin and evil from the world and from our own selves? There is that king who can heal and restore us. Even a worse broken, detached relationship, even our relationship with God can be restored. So if you're someone who has kind of detached relationship with God and so the result of many brokenness in our lives, Jesus, this king, invites us to come back to him. This is what King David can't offer, but this is what Jesus has come to fulfill. So in a way, the inability of David only force us to look forward to find there must be someone greater who can do what he couldn't for his ten concubines. But now let's go back to Jerusalem because we are told that David now needs to prepare for urgent battle. He soon find we soon find out he needs to kind of get rid of Sheba the betrayer. So he called his kind of newly or soon to be chief of army Amasa, who happens to be his nephew. And he round up, he, he asked Amasa, you go and round up the army in Judah for battle. But Amasa was either kind of incompetent or the urgency was too great. He can't finish the job. And he delayed his obedience to finish his task within three days. But the situation is so urgent that David can't wait. So he turned to the next person he can trust, which is Abishai, who is also his nephew. Okay, look at what he says to Abishai, verse 6. David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bikri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's man and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men and the Keratites and the Pelatites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Sheba. And they marched out, Sheba, they marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bikri. No, before that, what do we see? Actually, Joab was the chief of army. That he has been the one who leads the army. But, but David was furious with him because he says, "Please be gentle with my son Absalom, the young man." And he says, "Let's get rid of him." So David made a public oath. Last chapter, he says publicly, "Amasa will now replace Joab to be the chief of army." But now Amasa is kind of late. David ordered Abishai to take charge and go after. Sheba before it's too late. And as Abishai starts to take lead, we start to put his kind of obedience into question. Not his full obedience, but his obedience to lead in question. Because we are expecting Abishai to be in charge of this battle. And then Joab appears and seems to be back in charge. Look at verse 8. While they were in that great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them and Joab was wearing his military tunic strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in his shift. He stepped forward and dropped out of his shift. And Joab said to Amasa, How are you, my brother? Well, it's, they're kind of different um, parents, but really they're both nephews of King David. They say, How are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was known on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand and Joab plunged it into his belly. 
and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bikri. Now we're starting to see cracks in David's kingdom. The detached relationship that could not be fully restored, the delayed obedience from Amasa, and now this kind of incomplete obedience from Abishai as he hands the power to Joab. And now we see a derailed power that's against David's will. So we see, and we notice how the, the power kind of shift, right, from Abishai, uh, Amasai moved to kind of Abishai and then back to Joab, because Joab was so determined to have his power back as the chief of army, and this is not the first time. We've read earlier on, in, last year, as we were in chapter 3 of Second Samuel, that another case was like that, that David kind of gave his promise of care, uh, protection to Abner, who is the chief of command of Israel, so that they can all come back to David. And Joab was afraid that he loses his power. He goes to Abner when he was not expecting him. He killed him cold-blooded the way that he has done to Amasa. So he would murder for his power. And he refused to give in to what David has command. In fact, when, when he has killed Amasa, he, he acted as he kind of he's the innocent man, right? In fact, the man, uh, his man, one of his men said this in verse 11. One of Joab's men, he kind of stood beside Amasa and said this, Whoever favors Joab, whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. It's quite quite interesting the way that he tried to get his power back and then he says, Whoever is for David, you are with Joab. Whoever is for Joab, you are for David. If you are not for Joab, it means you are not for David. So there you go. He has brought the power back. And Joe, David's intention to remove from it, remove it from him kind of failed. So now Joab is in charge and he moves on uh, to capture Sheba in a very destructive manner. That's where 14 to 22 comes in. So we look at it, that kind of the army of Judah, they continue to pursue Sheba, not under leadership of Amasa or Abishai, but under Joab, clearly against David's will. And Sheba, He's on the run. He passed through all the tribe of Israel. He tried to gather men, but not very successful. Probably some of his own uh, kinsmen in Bikurites, the Bikurites. And he headed to Abel Beth Makkah, kind of a city or a fortress, to kind of hide. Joab, seeing that he has headed for Abel protection, he sent his full force to Abel Beth Makkah, and he wants to pull the whole city down in order to kill Sheba. There's nothing that will hinder, hinder Joab, not even a city. If he wants it, he will tear down the city if he needs to to get Sheba. He will have, and actually he could have done it, if not for the interception of this wise woman from verse 15. Let me read to you this interaction and see what it actually brings out. Verse 15. While we're kind of battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him. Joab went to her and she said, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, Listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, Long ago they used to say, Get your answer able and that settled it. We are peaceful and faithful in Israel. You're trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? We could see kind of the wisdom of this woman of repute, perhaps even the leader of the people of Abel. She, she called out humbly to kind of Joab, addressing him as kind of his master. He, she's her, 
his servant, kind of make it uncouth, right, for Joab not to listen. So he's kind of got to listen a little bit. And then she threw out the historical reputation of Abel as a people of wisdom, indicating, no, we don't need forces. Let's, let's talk and we can sort things out. And then she drew their, the, the relationship of Abel to David's kingdom. In fact, to God. He say, she says this, you know what? Abel, Beth, Makar, we are peaceful and faithful people. We are God's people. Perhaps Abel even provided for God's people as she calls herself a city of the mother of, she calls the city a mother of Israel. Therefore, Joab swallowing up and destroying the city of Abel is, is not actually not reasonable at all. It's kind of going against God and even going against the king himself because we are God's people. Why are you destroying us? So with skill and wise word, this kind of woman, this woman kind of persuades Joab to respond that Joab says, no, actually, I'm not a bulldozer. But, but he is a bulldozer, isn't it? We've seen all along that he's a bulldozer. I'm not a bulldozer. He says this in verse 20. Far from me, far be from me, far be from me to swallow and destroy. It's kind of opposite of, of, of who Joab is. Isn't it? Far from me, uh, from swallowing up or destroy. That's not the case. You know, a man, Shiva, son of Bikri, came, you know, he hid in your city. He says, you hand him over and I will redraw from the city. And the woman caught Joab and says, his head will be thrown to you. Over the war. So the destructive act of this Joab was kind of intercepted by this woman um, to prevent this kind of massacre of the city. Had it not been this woman, Joab would just bulldoze and it doesn't matter to him. He'll get what he wants. But there's something that we cannot miss out in this whole incident that of all of this, David is kind of the passive recipient of his kingdom. David was passive in his re-establishing of his kingdom. God uses a woman to intervene on Joab's leadership, but it is really um, Joab who is doing the job and God who is doing it his way as well. In verse 22, Then the woman went to all the people, gave her wise advice, they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bikri, and threw it to Joab. Then Joab sounded a trumpet, his men dispersed from the city, returning to his home, and Joab went back to the king. In Jerusalem, so that's kind of the picture of this whole whole battle uh, or this pursuit of Sheba. In in verse one, we kind of started. Actually, Sheba kind of blow the trumpet, and by blowing the trumpet, he created havoc for David. And here at twenty two, Joab blew the trumpet and closed up the loop and ended the havoc, and for David to re-establish himself. But so this is that kind of the big um, event or verse of chapter 22 as we can kind of pause here just a while to take stock of the kingdom of David. We want to see and we should be able to see that clearly this is not the kind of perfect kingdom Israel, Judah or any of God's people should expect as a ending of a story. Pain continues to reign in David's kingdom as he tried to provide for his ten concubines. You know, the author calls them the kind of living widows. There's a mix of obedience in David's kingship. Power is derailed from David's original plan, and Joab is still the chief of army. David was unable to win the war by his way, but by David, by Joab's destructive way, trying to destroy Abel. And these are the situations of the imperfect kingdom of David. But we have to remember the promise God has given in chapter 7 is that God will give a perfect kingdom, a perfect king with perfect people 
through the son of David. So it is not from David that who it has to be. And it has to be, isn't it, by now that it has to be that greatest son, which is Jesus himself. And he who turns to Jesus will receive the promise of God that they will not be destroyed. That it's only in the reign of King Jesus that relationships that are broken can be restored. The power that has been kind of derailed will be fully established in him. And the people who seek justice will find justice. And obedience is clearly established in, in Jesus' kingdom. In fact, this is what Jesus says about his kingdom. Uh, later on in Matthew, he says this about his kingdom. Let me just read to you um, this sentence that he says. Jesus has said that um, the weeds and the weeds, you know, the good fish, the bad fish, the, the, the sheep and the goats, on the final day, they will be separated. Those who are good will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who are not. This is what will happen to them. In Matthew 13, it says this, Those who are not for the king, they will be thrown into the blazing furnace where they will be whipping and gnashing of teeth. So that is what the real perfect kingdom of God will happen. And you will not be like the kingdom that David has kind of re-established in a way in, in 2 Samuel 20. So as we kind of try to finish up this this um, chapter, it comes out with this a series of summaries of leaderships uh, in chapter 20, verse 23 to 26, but it actually describes the kingship and the power of David. This is actually, it's almost a replica of Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 15 to 18. If you kind of flip them, they almost look alike. But I want to bring out some differences in this summary in chapter 20 is a summary of kind of the weakened kingdom, which is very different from the summary in chapter 8, which showed the powerful kingdom of David after the promise of God in chapter 7. Uh, I've taken a kind of snapshot, kind of, like it, uh, from John Woodhouse's book in Second Samuel. He kind of helpfully just put the verses together in a box um, to have a pick of the two differences from chapter 8, that David, and chapter 20, this David. I'm going to just focus on three um, key things, although there are quite a few things happening. But I just want to point out three things that points to us um, a greater longing of someone greater than David. The first one is is this. Um, in chapter 8, verse 15, it actually tells us that David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. That was how the summary started in chapter 8. But in chapter 20, you do not see this, that David's righteous or just rule as a king was absent. But instead, the second point that comes out in chapter 8, he says, No, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. And after all this time, David wants to get rid of him. Chapter 20 reads this, Joab was over Israel's entire army. No matter how many times David tries to get rid of Joab, it didn't work. And at the end, the haunting words of David when he started off his kingdom in chapter 3 um, rings true now. This is what David said in uh, chapter 3 when he was still um, reigning as king of Judah. He said this, Although today I'm the anointed king, I'm weak, and these sons of Zuriah are too strong for me. And after all these 17 chapters, this is still true. Joab is still too strong for David. So this kingship of David 
It's not a very stable one, even at this point. But finally, the greatest problem that comes with this summary is found in this one verse in chapter 20. There is a new vocation within the kingdom of David that was never before. Can you spot what it is? Verse 24. Adoniram was in charge of forced labor. The haunting words of Samuel that has not existed earlier on is starting to happen and it will not disappear. We have read this in our kind of Responsive reading, but let me read this to you again. First Samuel 8, before they wanted a king, Samuel warned this. Chapter 8, verse 17, You yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. We have a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Indeed, God's people will have a king who will lead them in war. And the next comes true. And the king will put you into forced labor. Now, until David's time, we don't really know who are the forced laborers. It could be foreigners or not. But one thing is for sure. By the time of his son, Solomon, Israelites are in the forced labor. They were put in his great kingdom of Solomon. Israelites are forced laborers. In fact, when Solomon died, that was the breaking point of the northern kingdom and southern kingdom forever. The Israelites who were forced labor says, Have mercy on us, give us relief from your, that Solomon has put on us. But the king said, No, I'll make it worse for you. And that forced labor broke the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of King David, and they were never reconciled. Dear friends, how would you have liked to write David's re-establishment as a scriptwriter. No, for me, I would have loved to write David as a strong king with a great end and everything was perfectly restored. But God's word always holds true. The words of Saul, 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 Samuel, the king of Isaiah, the king, the kingdom, the people in David's kingdom will not be perfect. And neither will it be for any kings after David. There will be no perfect king, no perfect kingdom, no perfect people. And it will be a hopeless search unless God fulfills his promise in 2 Samuel 7. And that's where Jesus comes in a thousand years after David. He reigned as a king wearing a crown of thorns. He ruled with power by the nails that pierced in his hands. And Jesus has now gone to the Father, but he will return. And on the day he returns, the kingdom that will be established will be not like David's at all. Because on that day, loyalty and unity will be certain. Perfect, restored, healed people will be in the kingdom. And power will be under the perfect king. The question for us kind of wrong off today in chapter 20 is this. Who or what do you entrust your life with will script the ending of yours and my story. Let me say that again. Who or what you and I entrust our lives with will script the ending of yours and my story. Do we share, do we have a share of Jesus' 
the son of Jesse, or we listen to the voices of the Shebas in our world, rejecting the son, and go back to our own tents and live our own ways. Let's just close this time in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for chapter 20 of Samuel, 2 Samuel. Let's look at David, the promising king. We see the typology of the kingdom to come, but we saw in the second part, just a mirror reflecting our world, that unless Jesus, the son of Jesse, comes, and unless we grab hold of him, we have no share in the inheritance of heaven. There's no one else who could give us a perfect kingdom, a perfect restoration under a perfect, loving, and just king. So help us to keep trusting in Jesus because he scripts the ending of our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.